Welcome to episode 21 of the Sizzle podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Ivor Williams. Ivor is a fascinating human. Ivor is the lead for end-of-life care at Imperial and the Helix Project. His work is focusing on using design to help people live, die, and grieve better. And this conversation is deep and funny and really, really relevant to everyone's life. It was recorded over lockdown, so we did it remotely, which means that, you know, there are a few crackles on the audio, but also that we are talking about death within the macro context of a global pandemic, which I thought was quite powerful. So yeah, let's let's jump into it and uh, away we go. I'm really interested to know how you describe your work and your thinking because, you know, even just your Twitter bio to me is just, it, it, it feels like there's a lot there in terms of richness. Mm-hmm. Mm. So yeah, how do you identify with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking about this at the moment because I'm kind of moving into a, a bit of a different role at work, the work I do at Imperial. And it's kind of broadening out, the kind of interdisciplinarity of it is broadening out, which so it's kind of becoming, uh, still design and it's still death and dying and loss and end of life care. But um, it's just more that the, the, the application is more broad in terms of working with other di- t- different types of people. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of finding like, what is, what is my role at the moment, you know? Um, but um, the, so I've been thinking about how to kind of, yeah, how to describe myself recently. And um, I always just find between the people that I really respect that are in the design field, as it were, one of the things I'm, I'm always clear on is not to describe the kind of design that I do, because I find that a bit odd. Because people talk about them being self beings product designers or strategic designers or systems designers or things like that. And I, and I, I find that a bit of an odd one. Um, I guess it's the idea of, you know, in the same way that, uh, I don't know what your, what your background is clinically or, or professionally, but you are a doctor, right? Ha, well, hold on. <laughs> um, I, I'm a psychologist uh-huh. uh, and I am a child and educational psychologist. Uh-huh. So I, I feel like I might be going on a similar journey with as you in terms of I like the I like the lens of psychology mm-hmm. and I think that I'm really I'm really trying to push on the edges of my of the areas that I work in to see how I can be useful so mm-hmm. in the same way that if you use the fundamentals of design you might be able to work across different areas and help different people yeah. I kind of um I'm doing a lot of thinking at the moment about how I can yeah use psychology so I am about to do a piece of research with uh, through the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust nice. into suffering and mm-hmm. and how suffering might be transformational um, as opposed to well, I mean, you know, suffering is is always going to have hard parts to it, but I feel like there might be something useful in in terms of helping people to turn towards as opposed to turn away. Mm-hmm. And that c- could be quite uh, tangential when you think about 
working with children and families but actually I think that it could be really useful across a whole range of experiences and the first application that came to mind was uh with young carers who who find themselves in a chronic situation um and I was a young carer myself and, and, and part of me thinks that I got a lot of really interesting and useful experiences from that uh period of my life so yeah I kind of offer up that that description because I think that it's an example of me trying to trying to yeah push out the utility of psychology generally mm, yeah. yeah I mean yeah so the like the lens I think is really useful like yeah, the lens of design I don't really feel like I have I don't have an alternative in terms of uh so at the moment like I'm 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 pushing what it, I don't know maybe what it means to be designer but like personally because I'm, I'm I'm writing policy work at the moment and I'm like I'm not a policy expert but here I am and I'm like you know trying to do a, a literature review and I'm like I'm not an academic and it's not even that complicated piece of work but like you know the my background the funny thing about going, joining the helix which was five years ago was for the first time since I was like 16 spending time with the people that I went to school with as in spending time again with doctors and nurses and surgeons and you know psychologists and people who like I didn't hang out with for like years because I went to art school and hung out with like weirdos who like had no plan in life and like were just very happy to sort of draw and doodle and make things and be designers or artists and 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 hanging out back with like people who saw the world in a very elegant way and who like knew their kind of role, like the application of their skills and talents in a way which is a bit different from like the design world or the kind of art world. And I find that amazing, like um, how both are very limiting. So in their own ways, because um, there's a sort of, there's, there's a dogma to both. and. What I love about, you know, actually, you know, healthcare professionals are far more creative in many ways than what you'd expect from a so-called creative person. Because, you know, it's just the way that you think and it's just the application of it, which is kind of can be, can be, can be limiting per se, because, you, you know, you, you enter in, I think in medicine and, and sort of healthcare, you enter into a hierarchy, which limits your capabilities to actually put you know do something different or push against it so like i'm always like i especially with the kind of you know so-called innovation that we work in like speaking to you know you come you'll meet a doctor or some sort of healthcare professional clinician or someone who's just like making stuff up just just like changing the the, the paradigms of how they do their practice on an individual level, because they're just literally responding to the needs of people. And they're like, well, no one else is doing this thing, so I just kind of created it myself. And it's just like, right, that's amazing. Like, how do you do that? It's like, well, we're just kind of, you know, just experimenting, playing, iterating, prototyping, doing all these things, but they just don't have, they don't use the language of design to describe it. And it's kind of like, well, that's, you don't need us. You don't need designers. You're doing it all yourself. Like, the, the, you know, people talk about the arrogance of, say, surgeons, but the arrogance of designers to think that they're somehow like the gatekeepers to creativity or the gatekeepers to sort of like making things happen is like mm -hmm. bizarre to me. So like it's been a kind of 
but at the same time there's also there's a, there's a sort of um you know the, the healthcare professional especially when it comes to death and dying has this kind of unique power where everyone just suddenly listens to them all the time and it's kind of like mm, that's a bit weird like let, you know, we should challenge that a bit you know <laughs> not a lot so like the, the the useful framing of being a designer in this space is kind of like that you kind of people are very confused as to why you're there you know i remember like in the first year of being at the helix um uh going around we were doing stuff around dna cprs like do not attempt resuscitate uh, do not attempt resuscitation orders um and i was on an oncology ward uh with a consultant and he was doing his rounds literally doing his rounds in this kind of oncology ward a lot of people are kind of in the last stages of life being in hospital with cancer and like you know he's like hi you know i'm the consultant you know blah 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 this is, uh, you know, this is Lucy. She's a she's a nurse, and this is this is David. He's a he's a doctor. He's trained. This is Ivy. He's a designer. And they're like, what? Like, why are you here? I'm like, just seeing what's going on, you know. And they're like, ah, whatever. And they, you know, they forget about me. And I'm like, Phew. you know, it's kind of uh, <laughs> the <laughs> they don't know why I was there, but they were kind of like, he looks he looks benign enough. Like, you know, he's not you're not going to try and do anything to me. It's fine, you know. But it's very like, why are you here? And it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know, just seeing what's going on. You mentioned something which resonated with me around the attitude to death and dying in medicine. Mm. And I, I kind of, I'd be interested to hear a bit more about that because my impression, and, and it's a, a lay impression just from personal experience and, and kind of popular anecdotes, is that the medical profession find dying quite difficult. And it's almost as if there's a, a lot of effort to prevent it and then some awkwardness around it when it seems inevitable. Um, that, that's my popular impression. Mm. My personal experience of having people I know die is that actually there was, as you, talk, as you talked about, there was a real a personal approach and that there was there were lots of lovely considerations and uh, yeah individual level uh, decisions that were made that felt quite um, honouring and uh, I'm struggling for the word uh, but felt really suitable and nice mm-hmm. so yeah I, I kind of I feel like I'm torn between these two impressions and I wonder how you how you interpret death within medicine there's a couple of things like one is like um the the, the issue of power and the other one is around this kind of archetype so the the issue of power is um the way i've kind of understood this through i guess working in it but i mean dipping in and out of intensity of of being in, in the work is like um you know the, the the history of death and dying in terms of who who has the power. You know Foucault talks about you know death being a disciplined site of power, in the same way that a prison is. You know that that it's a very clear understanding as to um, who sets the rules, how it's expected to be done, uh, who exercises it, and um, you know the priest used to be the kind of power in death. You know. And what's really interesting about this pandemic is, is there's an echo to what's going on 
back in the 13th century, which is basically the Black Death transformed the way in which death was uh, was was kind of exercised. In that the priests held all the power in terms of they were the ones who said, right, now you're dying. Now you've got to do this. If you don't do this, it's going to be bad for you and bad for your family. Like, you know, I've got the, you know, I've got the knowledge, I've got the experience, I've got the connection to God to be able to tell you that I'm going to mediate this basically. But the Black Death changed all that because they basically all the priests died. And um, the, the, the power balance around like who could mediate death fell to the family. Mm. Uh, it was still obviously priests and, and, and religious figures through Europe and, and obviously through the rest of the world in different forms, like has con- continued up until the 18th, 19th century. Um, so this idea of like, you know, the sort of the priest giving your last rites, that sort of mental image of like someone hovering over your bed, like, you know, giving you your sort of last rites. It's pretty powerful. But then in the 19th century, the doctor kind of emerges as this person, you know, with a sort of uh, investigative eye. You know, I think, um, yeah, Foucault calls it the clinical gaze. Um, the sort of the, the idea that this doctor's kind of looking at you being like, right, you are a collection of diseases and they're killing you now. And, you know, I can, I can see through it. And that's a power, that's like, that's omnipotent, like God. But it's it's based on on science. And it's like okay, so science can tell us that you're now dying, and this is what we can expect, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do this. I'm going to alleviate your symptoms. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. So that runs all the way through to the 20th century, which is, and we're still at that, but we're in this weird sort of transition, I think, where the capabilities of people or other people to mediate death and to be um, sort of. Uh, 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 distributing that power is starting to happen. So, I mean, I think that's probably part of the networked age that we're in. You know, we've never been, you know, the, the sort of birth of the internet transforms human civilization in a way which we're not even kind of understanding yet. So, like, the pandemic accelerates bits of that, and you can see little signals of the idea that, um, you know, care homes are now dealing with death in a way, obviously in a pandemic, in a, in a very acute way, but along the broader kind of, Along the broader kind of uh, 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 timeline, you know, more people are dying in care homes than, than you know, the, the rate is increasing. It's going to double in the next 20 years. And so people who aren't end-of-life experts, who aren't doctors, some of whom aren't, you know, they're not necessarily trained nurses either, but there are going to become people who are, who are managing our deaths. And so, like, what does that mean when, you know, by sheer numbers and sheer kind of distribution, we can't have the specialist doing that kind of mediating that space. And so it falls to lay people, essentially, although they're still carers, they're still professionals. They're not the same sort of people that did that 100 years ago. So that's really interesting to me. But on the same side, there's this idea of the archetype, which is um, the archetype of the person. There's a really powerful role, I think, that that has always existed, which is the person who stands in that liminal space between life and death, you know, it used to be the shaman. It used to be the sort of the, the, the medicine man. It used to be the, 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 the priest or the religious person. That person would just stand there on that threshold and be like, right, I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to pass you on to the next thing. And that's my job. And it's kind of like, it's where crazy people are. And it's kind of where the sort of, yeah, the religious kind of, you know, the transcendental people are and all this kind of stuff. And the, the priest, used to do that it's codified into religion and it's kind of like wrapped up into imagery and prayer and song and you know ritual and like that's the but the the the, the end of life person nurse doctor 
care or whoever it is doula you know they they can hold that kind of space now which is why like you know hospices are always they're called angels and they're called like um you know we're now calling them heroes in a broad sense like this, this archetype of like an angel or a hero like they're basically not human and they're kind of like this sort of different type of person and they're you know, they're, they're impervious and of course they're not impervious they're dying i mean it's ridiculous in this pandemic but like the idea that we need someone who embodies something which is greater than us because the the, the transition is so unlike anything else we've done before that there's something really powerful but having a type of person that uh, is assigned to us by society or civilization to sort of guide our hand through it and that's also part of it is that you because literally they've seen it a lot so the tension is like you need someone who's seen it a lot to know what to do because they're like i've seen this before don't worry that's that, we call that the death rattle that's fine don't worry about it or you know we can that that's that's an unacceptable level of pain like but that's an acceptable level of pain like he's not in pain they're not in pain whatever like i've seen this before that's basically what you need you need someone who's seen it so there's a tension between like how do you distribute that kind of responsibility but also how do you keep that wealth of knowledge and experience embodied in someone that makes you know that has a really important part to play in society so i find that whole that kind of approach really interesting in terms of like so what what is the role of design to help you know support that or accelerate that or uncover that you know because that's you know, it can be described in so many different disciplines. It's not, and neither is the right one, but I just find the design is a really helpful one because it's a bit more neutral because we don't have a sort of, um, uh, we don't have skin in the game in the same way because we're not trying to prop up an existing system. Uh, Religion and medicine have both got a legacy in the area, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And so like, it's it's a bit of a helpful, it's a, it's a helpful um, badge to wear because people are kind of like, you know, you could go either way. <laughs> you don't really, you know, you're not, you know, your skin in the game is not, yeah, in the same way. And design to me is quite an optimistic word. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, we're going to create something and it's going to mm-hmm. be useful and it's for the future and that that might be a comfort too. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a really quick question. You just mentioned doulas. Mm-hmm. And I have always associated doulas with being part of the child birth process Hmm. do they also support with the dying process yeah so that kind of came out i don't know when it's been relatively recently maybe 10 15 years tops is this yeah exactly we have birth doulas why why don't we have death doulas wow Hmm. there's a problem sorry go on well there's a problem with it which is again historical which is birth has always been done by women I mean, like the midwife is one of the oldest professions, you know, like in terms of the, the, the role of men in most societies, most cultures has never been at birth. So um, the inclusion of a, a, a gynecologist or a obs and gyne person uh, being a man is, is like pretty new. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that death is also very gendered, obviously. Like, you know, I'm always amazed that, like, if I go to meetings or, or organizations or, or kind of conferences and stuff, and it's 98% women. And it's kind of like death is a very gendered space as well, which is weird because priests for thousands of years were usually men. But, like, yeah, doulas end up being very 
uh, female. And like, it's interesting because like, I don't, you know, there's lots of problems with that in the sense that, you know, I, I hear anecdotally, but it seems to appear true that, you know, not everyone wants, people want different types of energy when it comes to their death. And like the, the caring mother is a kind of, is a really obviously a very deep, powerful one. But like, I kind of worry that like it, all it will do is just entrench existing kind of um, gender politics. And it's like expecting women to basically do it. It's like, bloody hell, seems a bit unfair. And you made me think of that when you were talking about the paradox around the expert, the expert in death, because, mm. you know, I see, I see how that's so necessary because I think that a lot of human energy psychologically is spent ignoring or uh, repressing potential danger and that allows us to go about our day-to-day life but then with death you can't do that and it's and it's this permanent ending of an attachment and so it's very fraught and yet there's not much experience uh, communally or, or familiarly in that area so having this expert would be very useful, but then you also have a situation where death is very personal. Mm. I mean, in some senses, it's the most personal thing you can do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, so how does that expert then facilitate the process in a, in a way which suits that person? You know, as you've said, you might end up with this kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word archetypal, but you might end up with a an expert who has a certain way of doing it, mm. and yet that that person might appreciate a, a very different uh, way of passing or or being being facilitated to die. Well, yeah, and that that strikes at the heart of you know we don't talk about like you know we don't talk about death enough, you know. The, the line is we don't talk about death. I just don't think we don't talk about it enough. Uh, or we don't talk about it at the right times, you know, like, um, because I think if, if you have that, if you make space for it in your life, then you can start to engage with it before it's a sort of existential worry or a sort of, you know, literally the sort of the, the moments where you're kind of having to rush through understanding it. Um, it's like the same, you know, everything's colored through with the pandemic at the moment. So like in time, this will pass, but like, you know, the idea that if, if we understood what it would be like to experience certain horrifying things before, when it wasn't actually occurring, we'd, we'd have some better preparation for it. So if you can sort of engage with, you know, the idea of at some point being at the end of your life, what would matter to you and what's most important to you. And like, what are the sort of things that you'd like to kind of be considered for you or with you? Um, then that, yeah, then that kind of stuff can be uncovered, which is, you know, um, I, I feel very mixed about it because, you know, it is a very personal thing and, you know, I've always been surprised because there's, there's a lot of, there's a caring mentality, which is like, says like, uh, some people say like, you know, no one should die alone. And that's happening a lot through, you know, in terms of what's happening in terms of the people that are dying at the moment, like no one should die alone. And under normal circumstances, I, I agree, like no one should be separated from their loved ones is, is basically what that means. Like no one should be forced to, to die alone. Um, but at the same time, like it's a very personal experience. Like, you know, and I've heard a lot from, from 
um, palliative care people saying like, to some extent, you have to die alone. Under normal circumstances, you, you know, when you're normal, when you have a normal death, quote, normal death, you know, there's a certain element, which is like, you have to kind of go through it yourself. And that's kind of like, that's an interesting thing. I don't know how true, you know, how true that is given the history of it all, but like, um, comes up a lot, which is, you know, someone's near the end of life. They're kind of, you know, slightly responsive. They're just, you know, in their bed. And then someone, you know, has been at the bedside for days. Then they go home for a shower. And then when they're going home for a shower, they, the, the person dies. Mm. But they go to the toilet and they, and they die, they slip away. And it's like, people need permission to go sometimes, but also this idea like, you have to kind of just, yeah, again, it's like you're, you're st- you've got one foot in one place and another, and another foot in this one. And you kind of have to just at one point just lift your foot and move on to the next thing. And it's kind of like, I think you must move into a sort of different headspace if you're conscious and capable, or you know, even if it's very bleary, that no one can come with you. And that's that's a very difficult thing. I think you have to be able to do. And so to have someone kind of holding your hand, like not wanting you to go, must be very hard because you're like, I, you know, this is not gonna. This isn't going to go anywhere else. Like this has to end, and that seems like a very intense space to be in. And I wonder at what point it shifts focus. So I wonder at what point the process ceases to be about the person dying, and then becomes about the people around them who are continuing to live. Exactly. Exactly. And that's kind of that's where it all becomes relational, which I find fascinating. And so that was kind of in terms of where we've gotten to in our work at the Helix is kind of an expression of that, which was, you know, if we think of it, if we stop thinking about it in a sort of human centered patient centered way, the kind of the, 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 the focus is on the patient in terms of like, okay, so manage their pain, you know, prepare their death, you know, do these things, you know, laser focus on them. But that, that really ignores the immediate context. And, and as you say, that kind of that transition or that kind of that, that focus outwards to the kind of, to the, to the sort of peripheral. And like, that's what we kind of, I learned quite clearly was, you know, the a doctor said once like, you know, who's a good death for? Is it for the person who's dying? Because we can kind of, you know, and they speak in general terms, like we can kind of handle it. Like, you know, you can get access to drugs, you can mediate, you can kind of, you can hold them, you can make them pain-free, you can make them comfortable. Is it, who's it for? Is it for the loved ones? Because they have to live with that death and they have to move on from that. And that, and if it's a bad death, that's, that's a whole world of pain. But is it for the doctor as well? Because we have to keep doing this. You know, is a good death for us? And she was like genuinely like puzzled and sort of like just like went quiet for a minute to think about it. And it was like, great, like you haven't thought about this before. Yeah, I haven't really thought about this before. And so, like, um, the, the question is, that, yeah, it becomes very relational. And, like, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, de- the dying experience is suddenly about the people around you in terms of um, do they feel like they honored you? Do they feel like, you know, they, they, they were able to kind of, uh, in an uncomplicated way, you know, uh, uh, accept it and sort of, you know, move through it? And, and how do you kind of allow you to do the next step, which is to, to yeah, to, to to bury them, to, to to let them go, to move on. Eventually, yeah. So that's a kind of a really interesting uh, kind of inflection point. Mm. 
you used the word archetype quite early on in our conversation. Mm. And I associate that with Jungian psychology and mm. the idea that there might be some human level truths or themes. And I suppose I, I was curious to know how you're using it and whether you think that there are human level truths when it comes to death or, or themes when it comes to death. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, I mean... Um, I was thinking, I, I kind of used, I mean, in, interchangeably between, I guess, you know, if, if, if Jung was the first to kind of describe it, I, I've also been thinking back to my kind of Joseph Campbell, uh, the hero's journey and like the sort of the, the sort of, uh, mythical ar- archetypes of like those kind of people that, um, you know, join you on an, on an adventure, you know, and the sort of the, the roles that they play at particular points in your journey. Um, <clears throat> and there's always a thing Joseph Campbell talks about, which is really, I love because George Lucas, when he wrote Star Wars, was basically riffing on Joseph Campbell and um, his kind of the, the hero with a thousand faces, this idea like there's, there's, a, there's like all societies and cultures basically have like the same story which is like the hero's journey and like all fiction is based on like six or eight stories, archetypal stories, you know? Um, and like, uh, the, the best, the most satisfying stories, films, books, whatever, like all follow like a, like this kind of arc and star Wars is so good because it basically follows that arc. And there's a bit basically where Joseph Campbell, who's this, uh, I guess he was an anthropologist maybe. I mean, he, he wrote, yeah, he was, he was great, but like, um, he wrote about this bit in Star Wars. I don't know if I'm sure you, I hope you've seen it, but there's a bit where Luke Skywalker goes into the, the bar in the first film where he kind of like, he's just like naive little kid um, going into this kind of bar with all these aliens and the aliens are all kind of bizarre and scary and crazy. And he's kind of like totally bewildered, doesn't know where he's going. He kind of follows the old man and uh, meets these kind of like, you know, these swashbuckling sort of, you know, pirates basically. And um, in Han Solo and Chewbacca, and he's like, uh, Joseph Campbell says, like, yeah, where you? He's like, when 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 Luke's when Luke walks into this bar, which is like a Wild West bar as well. It's like, he's like, where you are is on the edge, and like you've never been there before, but you you, you can see people who have been there before and they've come back from it, and like that really excites you because like you know that you're about to jo- go on this journey, and it's like that thing has always stuck with me. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly it. Like the sort of sense of excitement that like you, the whole, this whole thing is about to be exposed to you. And there's someone who's been there before and, you know, death isn't necessarily exciting, but the idea that, you know, for, for, for them, this is not new and that's kind of reassuring. And that's kind of really, you know, you can put a lot of trust in that. And um, it's kind of, it's a powerful role to play in society. And I think, uh, you know, I think, the, the the other one is, I don't know if it's a union concept, but the, the idea of a wounded healer, um, the idea that someone comes through, you know, someone is, is, is goes through a baptism of fire, they go through their own experiences. And I think, you know, I think medicine and, and healthcare and, and, you know, uh, you know, fields of yeah psychology as well are, are full of people who have gone through their own journeys and been wounded by it, but come through the other side and want to be able to help other people. 
And that's kind of like, that's a, that's a really powerful role. And that's where the kind of compassion is, where the empathy is, where this kind of, but it's, on the flip side is where the kind of, you know, the, the, the fatigue can come in and this idea that people will burn themselves out helping other people. And that's a really kind of, that's the danger zone. But like, that's a, to me is really just as clear as night and day when I kind of come into this space. It's like, yeah, these are people who really care and they'll do anything because they've been through it and they, they, they touch it daily and they know it's at stake and they know what's kind of going on. And it's kind of like, oh, wow, it's really, it's a privilege to be around that kind of stuff. Mm. I recorded an episode with, Fiona, who's a friend and a doctor, and she talked about how, from her point of view, she felt that doctors really struggle disproportionately with the idea of mental health difficulties because of the way that they are selected and selected for and then trained. Mm. Uh, she felt that they, you know, yeah, they they weren't. Uh, finding people with the right competencies or kind of helping them to find and connect with those competencies. And I wonder whether the same could be said for attitudes to death. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah. Because it's no, I find it, it seems inevitable to me that, you know, in my own life, I think I was around, you know, I grew up in Edinburgh. Uh, my parents aren't religious. In fact, they're kind of, my dad was like, I hate men with pointy hats. And I was like, all right. Uh, and um, the, kind of, the heritage of my own family between Germany and, 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 and uh, Liverpool and Ireland is like, yeah, kind of Calvinistic, slightly kind of Protestant, you know, basically not kind of neutral in my mind, but it's obviously kind of burdened with a whole bunch of different stuff, but like basically not a religious household. And so like when I was at 14 or 15, I, I was very anti-religious. I, I hated religious kind of teaching at school because I went to school, which, you know, was ostensibly, you know, had religious, we had like prayers in the morning or hymns and I had to get taught RE, like religious education. And I hated it because it was just the, the assumption that you know, like, you know, my teachers used to always say like, you know, uh, Buddhists believe blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, uh, Muslims believe blah, 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 blah. You know, but Jesus did this, and it's like, wait a minute, like, why is one a fact and one's a belief? Like, this is weird, and that just always stuck in my craw. And uh, but I, I think as it, I don't know how I, I do credit maybe one of my teachers, but you know, I, I eventually kind of discovered Buddhism. I was about fifteen, and I got really into it because it just it it basically you know, it was the first thing I ever read saying like life is shit, and like that's what you're gonna have to deal with, and my life wasn't shit. It was just more like no one had ever said like, by the way, this is really difficult. It's not like solve roses at the end. It's like, it's like by, by, by being here, you're going to have to experience a lot of pain and your, your kind of task in life is to kind of work through that. And I was just like, wow, that's refreshing. And I kind of just, I just liked the sort of simplicity of it. And, um, it, to me, it's no surprise that, you know, as, um, you know, the, the, the most kind of interesting people who work in death tend to be Buddhists because they kind of embody that kind of um, that acceptance or they work towards that sort of acceptance. And that's a really powerful way of approaching it all. And then to lesser or greater extent, people, you know, they, they take on philosophies and they actually do practices and all this kind of stuff. But there's a sort of perspective shift that like, um, 
you know, you can see that in cultures. So in, in, in sort of Chinese or Japanese or, or uh, Southeast Asian or, or Tibetan or, you know, whatever these, all these cultures, they have a sort of very kind of frank and, and uh, present relationship with death. Um, whereas, you know, in, in Europe, we have this heritage of, you know, really trying to kind of box it away. Um, and that's kind of, yeah, you, can't, you, have to, you have to spend a bit of time unpicking that kind of long history in yourself, depending on where you're from and what kind of upbringing you had. So like that kind of, that kind of conditioning uh, plays itself out through the education then. And so like, you know, how the kind of the, 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 the goals of what people do in this kind of space they want to try and do is to try and, you know, they want to help people, but you have to help people with the understanding that you can't always help everyone. And when you can't help them, like, what do you do? still can do lows but like that's not kind of work the, the capabilities and the training that i guess healthcare professionals are given is is lacking in that kind of stuff in terms of from my understanding like the, literally the amount of training you might get in your in your you know in your medical training around death and dying is very small do you think that this is such a loaded question so <laughs> apologies but we'll see where it goes do you think that death is viewed as a failure in medicine? Hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, you can see it. So the crises kind of expose things as they really are, right? So in my, my, my feeling is at the moment, like it's exposing, you know, what Britain is, compared to America, compared to South Korea, compared to New Zealand, compared to Germany, whatever, like you can see like how we're actually responding to stuff. And the way in which the deaths are described, um, was it 30 something thousand now? Every, every one of those deaths is seen as a failure. Every one of those deaths is seen as an indictment of the government, indictment of like our failure to do something correct. And that, and this, this, that's the tension, like how awkward is it if you say none of those deaths are a failure? Like that's a really horrible question to ask because it's kind of like you're basically, are you saying, are you suggesting that everyone who dies from, the, from COVID, it's not saying they deserve to die, but it's saying that their death wasn't uh, a mistake. Um, it wasn't, uh, um, the question is, you know, can death be avoidable? is maybe a more useful question. <laughs> eventually, everyone dies. I mean, ev eventually, you will, you will succumb to something. So no, not every death is avoidable. But premature deaths or uh, unexpected deaths can be perhaps unavoidable. And so you have to kind of unpick it a little bit. But this idea, there's a general, there's a larger kind of meta-narrative that, yeah, that death is somehow a failure because we should be better than this. Like, we should be able to avoid... This idea that we have um, the, the the great thing about this pandemic is that, uh, this pandemic has exposed this idea that growth is the natural state of things, and growth is not the natural state of things. Like we cannot continue to accelerate everything that's every metric that we have. There comes a point where decay, death, loss is an essential part of that thing, and that's kind of a really very hard thing for us to understand in a post war, a post war, second world war economy and and you know culture which is like everything's but everything's always gotten better like you know millennials are the first generation to get, have less than their parents 
and that's like psychologically so damaging for so many people because they were our whole whole world is geared towards us kind of being like things are always going to get better like growth is the way to go and this is exposing that growth is not always going to happen that people will die prematurely people will die quote you know with avoidable deaths but that's that's not the nature of things you know like human history is is like this this is actually the way things have kind of been um is that you know, there's been diseases and there's been kind of uh, uh, mass deaths of different kinds from various different reasons. And that's kind of so hard to deal with because we're not used to it. So there's a bit of a correction, I think, to be done, which is to say, yeah, to unpack that question saying there are, there's failures, there's not enough protection, there's not enough testing, there's not enough um, contact tracing. Th- those are failures which are kind of not about death. But there is something unavoidable about death in itself, and that's not to be seen as a failure. So um, the, 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 the larger question as well is like off the back of that is, you know, if a COVID death is a failure, is a natural death still a failure? If someone dies of, of cancer or of dementia or of you know, a heart attack, is their death a failure in that regard then? Like we, don't, we seem to have forgotten in this pandemic everyone else who's dying. And it's like, but it keeps going on every day. Like, I think what terrified people is the idea, like, you know, there's a number every day. There's a tally every day of people that are dying. And I'm like, there's a tally every other day, every other year, of people dying. You know, 500,000 people, 560,000 people a year die. Like, if you had that, like, if we just had that in the same way on the front page of The Guardian every day, just not with, with no pandemic, we just had a tally of everyone dying. Like, yeah, that's going to bring up some that's going to bring up some anxiety because you'll be like, oh my god, like really, everyone's dying all the time. It's like, yeah, everyone's dying all the time, but we've just hidden it for so long that it's kind of like terrifying again. And I think that for me links to something I said earlier around the coping mechanisms that I think humans employ a lot of the time, which is to not think about death and to just kind of crack on. Um, and yeah, if you have that tally, it brings in this tension, this, mm. this, maybe this dissonance. You contributed to uh, a paper on collective grief. Mm. And that, that was really interesting to me for a number of reasons. I think because I think that some... I think that there are some systems I'm trying to be diplomatic. I'm just going to go for it. I think that, I think that in England we do death quite badly <laughs> um, in terms of what happens afterwards and the grief uh, and, and the processes we have for grief. Mm-hmm. So that, Hey, that's my personal view, but um, I, I like the way that it was framed in terms of things we can do collectively mm-hmm. uh, to, to support grief and make and make that more of a a part of the process, maybe, maybe part of a, a cycle. So, I, yeah, where where did that come from uh, as an idea, and and how does it feel having put it out there into the world? Yeah, I mean, it's been a in my it, for me personally, it's been rumbling around for I don't know two years maybe, but like. Um, Again, it's the idea of, on, on, in, one, in one sense, it's this idea of like, you know, the idea with a good death and who's it for. 
is the natural sort of having spent, a, you know, some t- time with kind of people at the end of life and then seeing, you know, how things are just so much more interconnected than we think they are. And our kind of, our, our mindset in the world is very focused on the individual, you know, in terms of the way that we view the world. It's just everything's kind of atomized. And so death has become very atomized in terms of like what's right for that person. As you're saying, like what, what about everyone around you basically? So that was one part, which is like being aware that like, mm, this is really kind of, it's really, you know, it's really tangled. You know, like this stuff is really, you can't, you can't isolate it. Like everything's so kind of interconnected and interwoven in a way which is exposed and kind of seen different ways. There was also, um, uh, so the, 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 the report was kind of, it was myself, um, uh, Alex Evans, who runs a collective psychology project, and Casper, uh, I always forget how to kind of pronounce his name, Turkul, who does a lot of work on rituals. So there's like three elements that kind of like background uh, um, in terms of the the, the, the voices in that in that report. Um, but the, the the kind of where that where it kind of came from consciously was around climate change. So I I presented a number of lectures and I wrote up. Uh, those lectures around climate change and climate grief. And I was really interested in trying to kind of pin down or just to open up from, from my perspective around, as you're saying, like we don't do death very well, quote, in, in, in the UK. Um, I, I'd say the sort of the, the dominant uh, white Christian culture in, in Britain doesn't do death very well. Um, you know, the more I learn it, it's like, yeah, you know, because again, growing up in Scotland, I didn't have much exposure to say Judaism and then learning more about how Jewish communities in the UK handle death. I'm like, wow, they do it really well. <laughs> like they do it really well. And I'm kind of like, you know, so we have to be careful about who, when we're saying we, who, who's we basically. Um, you. That, that uh, frames my undiplomatic comment in a much uh, more thoughtful way. Yeah. No, no. It's, I mean, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. It's like, it's more, you know, I'm, I've fallen to the trap enough as well. So uh, I'm always aware of like not <laughs> trying to trip myself up, but like, um, uh, the, so the, 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 the paper was, yeah. So for me, camera climate grief and, and trying to understand, like, um, there seemed to be, it seemed to be a huge missing element, which is again, the, going back to the earlier points about like the people, like if we're reckoning with climate change, and breakdown and, and ecological collapse. Uh, and people are just, you know, we're, we're looking to, to kind of find ways to cope with it. Uh, and people are doing it in very, various different ways. People are drawn to action. People are drawn to, to terror, to, to kind of, you know, fear in, in action. People are drawn to sort of, you know, pausing and waiting and seeing what happens and, and thinking about it. And um, it just occurred to me at that point, you know, I was writing these lectures, it's like palliative care, like what we need is like planetary palliative care. Like we need, if you think about climate change, our responses to climate change, um, you know, uh, carbon capture or like mirrors in the sky to deflect the sun and like geoengineering and, and, and lots of different things are in a way life-sustaining treatments to a planet in the same way that um, dialysis and uh, CPR and uh, ventilation is to a dying person. And in the palliative care world, like life-sustaining treatments, you know, there's a point where they're, 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 they're futile. You know, they're futile interventions. And like my, I guess the thesis on my point for that was like, 
it's because we cannot accept the idea that things are ending on a, on a civilizational level, potentially, that our reaction is to try and just kind of keep the system alive. But if we were just to accept that things were not actually going to go very well, in the same way that if you have a terminal disease, there's a level, a point where you might have to accept that you're not actually going to survive. You then move into a different space. And if you move into a different space, then that's where grief comes in. And, you know, and picking up that thread and learning more about it was like, actually, if you can accept reality, which is one of the kind of steps, like if you can accept reality, you can then start to move through the grief. And, but that, what that does is it does a whole number of different things. And so in, like, that's what I mean in terms of the lessons that we can learn from different fields in palliative care. Um, there's a really nice analogy, which is if this is, this is, there's evidence to show this, but basically if you say have a, a terminal disease and you get, you're given like aggressive treatments like chemotherapy, radiotherapy, you know, any number of different treatments, you know, your, your, your life expectancy will go down and your quality of life goes down pretty sharp with it because of just the, the burden of just all these diseases, the, the nausea, the kind of the, the back and forth, the going between doctors and appointments and just being bombarded with stuff like your quality of life just goes into the pan, you know? But if you uh, take, if you stop the aggressive treatments and do kind of palliative care and, you know, comfort and kind of maintain, manage symptoms instead of trying to aggressively cure them, um, your quality of life goes up because you're, you're just, you're able to just kind of enjoy the time you have and you're able to, to, to try and, you know, you're able to manage pain and you're able to kind of lessen the impact of the disease. And actually what happens is you live longer. And it's like this weird counterintuitive thing saying like doing less, not doing stuff can actually be better for you. And so that's the kind of context that I kind of came to this idea and then sort of um, thinking that about climate change and, and seeing like, well, actually there could be a more powerful way for us to deal with cataclysmic change, which is to accept death, to, to, to grieve as part of that process of that psychological process that we have to move through. Um, and so I spoke, so Alex is a, a good pal of mine. He runs a collective psychology project, which is around originally framing around political polarization and the idea of, you know, Brexit exposed and sort of, you know, the same in America and Europe as well, like the sort of the atomization of, of society and the sort of this breaking up of us versus them. So you can see it everywhere. Uh, the sort of idea that there's a very clear di distinction between us and them. And his point is saying, like, we need a larger us. We need to think of a collect in a collective way to kind of tackle the sort of problems of our age. And so he's expressing lots of different ways. And we chatted around um, uh, uh, the pandemic when it, when it sort of really kicked off. And having known the sort of work around climate grief, he was like, you know, I think there's something in this, which is like there's, there's a real need for us to tackle the pandemic in a collective way. And I was like, and I think, it, you know, it's about – doing that through grief because if we can accept all the things that we've lost for a starting point all the things that we've lost which include people and loved ones and and and, and jobs and sense of security and a sense of the future and all this kind of stuff and a way of life and all these things if we can start to actually acknowledge that we, there, there's an opportunity for transformation which is so much more powerful than just trying to keep things the way they are but that requires us to yeah, really accept that things have changed and things are gone and they're not coming back 
and certainly loved ones have not died in a very good way. And how do we deal with that? And how do we sort of like, so we were careful not to try and like make it too actionable because we just don't know. We, we had some starting points. Casper put some really beautiful starting points. But I think the point is, you know, we framed it around eight lessons around grief. And we, we, we had some sort of like things you can start to do to grieve. But like um, the point being is that to do this on a collective level, it's very kind of, it's a very interesting thing around like how we might actually start to do that. So it's a, it's a starting point, I think, for, for us and for many other people to try and think about how we might collectively grieve as a society, uh, as a community, in a way to, to, in response to what has happened and what will continue to happen. Mm. You talked about the potential for transformation that can come out of working with suffering in a certain way. Um, I wonder where your thinking is at with that. Um, I think there's a there's one risk when we talk about this kind of stuff, which is to rush through to um, successfully doing something um, in the idea that you can kind of so this is where the, 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 the fogginess comes in, which is like, how do you know you've transformed? It's yeah, like, how, how much suffering is enough to get to the transformation bit? Yeah, like, is it just touching it and then being like, oh, God, that was weird. Like, I'm, I'm changed, you know, like, what's this, what's this sort of, yeah, what's the level of change that, you know, might happen? So, um, you know, we're all going to experience loss. We're all going to lose a loved one. You know, eventually we'll, we'll lose all our loved ones potentially, you know, and like the the there's no right or wrong way of doing any of it. I think that's maybe part of it is to, there's a caveat. There's like, there's not a right way to do this, but I think there's something to be said around how can you be, uh, to what extent can you be a victim of your, of your circumstances? This is where I can, kind of, I, I can kind of fall back to Victor Frankl in terms of, you know, there's some things you can't control. Um, like you cannot, in, in the case of him, like you cannot control the fact that he ended up in a concentration camp. You cannot control the fact that whatever reason, like this is the way things went in the world. But you can control your, your reaction to it. Like that is the, that's, the, that's where your power lies. It's like you, you, you have the ability to decide on how to respond. And I think that's true for this as well in terms of general loss. Is like, you know, we can't stop this pandemic. We can't stop losing a loved one. We can't stop, you know, a recession, but we can cho- we can choose how to respond to it. So that's where the opportunity for transformation comes through. And I think that's like um, where you can kind of um, move through different states. So I mean, how that actually happens is like, yeah, it's, it, it varies between how people actually kind of engage with stuff. But um, I like to feel that if nothing else, this whole experience has allowed us to kind of touch that. And so we're a little bit more familiar with it. Um, I don't think, I wouldn't expect m- most people to be able to kind of feel like they come out of this changed. I think most people just want to be like, fucking hell, that was horrible. Like, can we get back to the way things were? And, but I think if, I think we've all, I, I would like to think that we've all kind of experienced and touched that a little bit. And that's a little bit of transformation, but it's just the, 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 the extent to which people feel like they can benefit from it. Because for many people, it's just going to be like loss is nothing but pain. And um, 
the, the world is full of people who who never engaged with that experience i'm sure you know like the the kind of unresolved trauma i just think it's just so responsible for so much stuff it just cascades through generations when people don't engage with it and don't transform through it they're just trying to rigidly hold on to the person that they were before that trauma or that thing happened um but i just think you know a lot of the evidence just says that that's really bad it's not it, you don't you you end up in a poorer state for it yeah there's there's such a delicate balance between acknowledging the diversity that will occur when it comes to suffering and responses to whilst also noticing trends in terms of you know what might be what might lead to the greatest chance of some kind of uh, productive outcome or the least horrible way of experiencing something or mm. ways of stopping, as you talked about, you know, generational trauma. Mm. Um, I recognize that. Yeah. Sometimes I, I wonder if part of it's to do with the timing. Sometimes it's people just aren't in a place to, to have that conversation or, or be part of that process. And, and, uh, that has to, yeah, that has to be, it has to be respected sometimes. There's, there's a larger issue to this, which is, um, I guess, this idea of transformation, which is, I think I might have mentioned coming back to it, which is this idea that part of what we have, the problem is, is not necessarily just the like, decline in religious belief and the sort of idea that, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a world after this in many ways people believe in it which allows people to kind of accept and move through lots of different stuff because they think there's a payoff in the end or there's a there's a thing that we can go towards there's a larger thing in the west which is since the enlightenment we have had a mechanistic worldview um prior to that like there was lots of flexibility you know it was a very naturalistic worldview in terms of the way that science was understood the way the natural world was understood but the way in which, you know, a Cartesian model of the world, which is the idea that you can, you can, you can break things down to the component parts, investigate them, put them back together again. You know, it's like, I find it kind of bewildering. Um, you know, when you, when you think about the holistic nature of stuff. So because in end of life care and palliative care, you know, you're seen as a holistic, the, the care is holistic. So your, your, your physical needs, your, your psychological needs, your, your, uh, uh, social needs um, are all kind of cared for, catered for, because they're seen as interwoven. You cannot, like, pain is not just necessarily physical. It's psychological as much as it is um, uh, uh, physical and emotional. And so, like, this idea that we have a, a kind of slightly unsupportive uh, worldview um, around, especially in Europe, in the West, around the way in which things way in which nature works because that idea is like if you if you understand the natural systems of stuff that death and loss are like a precede, precede renewal you know like if uh, i went uh, we had a my wife and i had a honeymoon in costa rica uh last january and i'd never been in a rainforest before and i kind of like hanging out in a rainforest like palpably getting the sense understanding in a very visceral term that 
the rainforest of these beautiful trees full of life and like, you know, monkeys swinging around and chickens and all this kind of stuff. None of it works unless you negotiate the rotting wood on the ground floor, on the, on the, on the, on the bed of the, the forest. Like, and then we actually spend time in like the rotting wood. You go, oh my God, the amount of stuff here, like the amount of life rotting around the rotting wood is like phenomenal. And you can like, oh, well, none of this works above me if, with the, the stuff at the bottom. So that renewal, that sense of like the, 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 the rotting leaves and the, the, the wood and the kind of decomposing whatever is not the, the end. It's the beginning of what's going to come next. And it's like that kind of cycle is like when you visually understand it, like through just literally hanging out in a forest, wherever it is, and then kind of understanding the sort of the mental models that we've kind of had since the Enlightenment, which is to kind of break that. Um, <clears throat> you kind of understand that we, we don't give ourselves the kind of the chance to understand the, the opportunity for renewal through loss. We kind of just think, well, loss is the end. And death is the end. And so the kind of cycle gets broken. It's like, no wonder that's a terrifying, horrible experience. And sort of like, how could something so painful give me something that I can use? Or how can it kind of um, lead to something positive somewhere down the line? Um, we kind of, we try and put the brakes on it a little bit. And that, I think that leads to part of the problem. Mm. I was talking the other day about the curse of the prefrontal cortex and the idea that humans are in this interesting position because we have these urges these instincts but we also have the ability to question and consider and restrain and uh try and work around them and that and that means that we yeah we can sometimes do amazing things like decide that hitting someone's not appropriate and that actually I would much rather try and take their perspective and be compassionate and resolve this. But that we can also find ourselves in tricky situations where we become very, uh, very self-centered in, in, a, in a system or a process that is very much uh, about exactly that, the system and the process. Mm. So we can view ourselves as, uh, subjective individual as opposed to uh you know a very small piece of life within a larger web of life mm. um so yes i i think that's interesting you you went to rotting wood whereas my mind went to forest fires mm. the enriching properties of the ash and the the growth that comes from it mm. um yeah that is a i suppose Maybe this is another human bias that we kind of are very uh, predisposed to viewing our moment in time as the most important moment in time. But uh, when you think about cycles of life and death, you know, they, they are, exist with movement. Mm. Yes. I, I like to cling on to my circa 80 years. Thanks very much. <laughs> exactly. Uh you know, it's like, yeah, two things. What that reminds me of is like my favorite Bill Hicks bit when he talks about like, this is all just a ride. And it's this idea that, you know, some people have been on it for a while and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, but just remember, it's just a ride. 
but there's people who are like really invested in their in the ride. Like they're like, no, 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 like this is really important. It's like, no, it's just a ride, you know. Like, but like I'm putting all my money in this ride. You know, it's like, don't worry, like you're gonna get off at some point. It's like, what? You know, like this idea that you know, yeah, you being on the ride is is like the important part. It's like, no, 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 like you know, it's just a ride. You're gonna, you know, it's gonna end. Um, the other element to that is uh, uh, oh, what I was gonna say. I've lost it now. I think we're in a really interesting place in history because we we're starting to edge up against ways of dealing with aging uh-huh. that might radically shift people's expectations of life. And I suppose some of the people that talk about this paint a picture like, you know, what would it look like if you were about 50? And then started to take, uh, you know, or participate in treatments that extended your life way past the the endpoint that you might have had in mind. And what would that do to your uh, interpretation of the life that you'd lived and the course that you'd plotted? And um, I suppose it makes me think about that perspective you know that the length of the ride does to some degree shape how you how you engage with the ride there's 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 two things to that one is uh so if i lose my thread one is around the the needs of the person like like maslow's hierarchy of needs and the other one is like to what extent is length of life equivalent to uh, quality or impact like if you think about the life expectancy up into up into the 20th century, like you know, we've added like 30, 40 years to our life expectancy. Like, have 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 you know, has the contribution and acceleration of all the good things been done by people in their 90s? There's very few people who who like um, you know, for thinking about why life expect why life, longer lifespan is good for humanity. Like, why is it good for us? And so, like, because the thing I find is that the radical life extension folk out of Silicon Valley are, like, objectivists and Randians in their philosophy. So they basically, they're so centered on themselves that they just want to live forever. But they don't want humanity to live forever because as soon as you do, like, the, the argument falls apart, which is like, well, so what do we do with pensions? And what do we do with care? And what do we do with like, you know, aging populations and how do we even make this work? And it's like, and then they kind of go, they go quiet because they're like, shut up. Like, it's not for everyone. It's just, oh, no, we, we just need to raise the pension age to 90. Exactly. <laughs> but like, we're already facing that. That, that. You know, that's part of this problem is that, you know, we're having a pension crisis and because like, you know, the money coming out is far more than money going in. Um, so you can't deal with life extension unless you deal with birth rates. But we all know that we should, you know, as a planet, we should be lowering our population levels across the board. That's, the, again, the kind of uncomfortable conversation about climate change. But I, I'm not, it's not my forte. I'm not going to get into that because I don't really know enough. But like, so it kind of goes back to this idea of needs. So like you're saying, like, you know, how, what, what can we achieve in a lifetime? Like, what do we need to do in our life? And like the the a kind of aha moment for me a while ago was because people talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs 
terms of you know at the bottom is like your basic needs like shelter food safety and you kind of move through these kind of levels um where you kind of have like meaningful work or you have like you know meaningful relationships and you know you ascend once you kind of get the get the first done you can move up to the next basically and at the top is like self-actualization right this idea that you know you can really kind of work on your inner self and you can kind of like you know come to peace and everything else um the problem is is that maslow when he was working on that model in the 1930s he he couldn't he couldn't formulate it into a framework that 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 kind of worked so he's he's like an he went to see some anthropologist friends in um uh montana or south dakota in the u.s and he, he was hanging out with his anthropologist friends who were working with the blackfeet i can't remember their, their indigenous name but like the, we call them the blackfeet and um their life philosophy is framed around a teepee because that their, their culture their culture of living in teepees so they have this kind of life philosophy which is pyramid and structure um and it has self-actualization in it. And so he was like, oh, my God. Like, so he basically, he took their model of this triangle with, with self-actualization in it, but he put self-actualization at the top. But in the Blackfeet philosophy, self-actualization is the bottom of the pyramid. Like, that's, like, that's where you start. And you ascend to continuity, and you ascend to uh, ancestral continuity. So in their world philosophy, which he basically, he, he, he ripped off, he stole, he kind of warped and individualized it because the original life philosophy is the top of the pyramid is you becoming part of a continuum of ancestors and situating yourself in time, both before and after people. This is the way I've kind of understood it as well, particularly, so it might not be accurate that much, but this is the way I've certainly understood it. The goal is to realize where you are in time and to to see that, to understand that you are just part of this unbroken thread, um, because that's where immortality—that's where immortality lies—is knowing that you're part of a continuum, rather than like, oh, my life ends. Like the Randian sort of approaches, and Rand was like, you know, the world doesn't end; uh, I end. You know, and it's like it's horrible. You know, like that, the pressure that you think that everything is centered around you is terrifying. When you realize the world is not centered around you, and in fact, like you're part of this, you know, line of ancestors, is quite reassuring. And I well, think that the Obi Wan returning to the Force, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I have a. I want to respect your time, but I'm I'm really loving this conversation, and I, I get. I mean, I could certainly continue for hours and hours, um, but I. I suppose I, I want to ask you about Cove app. Mm -hmm. I've used it and I really like it. And um, I'd love to know where that idea came from. Mm. But I also, I suppose I'm interested to know where, what you're thinking about now in terms of design, death, and maybe some challenges you're starting to uh, muse on. So I, I suppose like where you're thinking is, is going um, mm. and then also Cove app. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i've got time man so i, I we, we booked until 10 so i'm happy to talk till 10 cool okay um so cove yeah i mean it's it's pretty fitting to this whole conversation because um this started 2013 so i 
the story of how I got into this work is like when I studied at art school, um, I did my last year of art school around thinking about death quite specifically because I was, I was like, all right, knowing that, you know, I was going to try and become a designer, like I was going to have to work in the commercial world and kind of do designs properly, quote properly. And this was my last chance to do things I cared about, basically. You know, people up the road had been like, enjoy your last year because you won't get to do this ever again. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to do what I really care about. And, and, and for me, it was a bit of a, almost a bit of a therapy. It was like, okay, so how do I, how do I think about death? It'd been in my mind since I lost my best friend a couple of years before. So I just, it all, I was kind of carrying it around. And um, so I did my final year around death and, and, and started doing some work. And then I got really fed up couple of years into my career about like this design malarkey it seemed, seemed like just bullshit it's just like making look, things look great for other people who are willing to pay for it and just didn't feel that useful so I went back to the drawing board about what I should be doing and I, and I thought about like well what can design do to to help us with death and it end, ended up it took me to a place called Fabrica in Italy where um, a designer Chief Exec, CEO, uh, Dan Hill, kind of, we met and he, we kind of hit it off because he was kind of, his work was around strategic design and sort of like how to sort of use design in a very kind of powerful way to kind of tackle society's biggest problems in a way. And um, we kind of hit it off because I was saying like pitching in this idea of like design for death, basically. So he, 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 he brought me into Fabrica where it was basically a design experimental design studio. And so we just had loads of different projects um and one of them was around um basically i remember reading a new york times article around oh that was it, it was um selfies at funerals <laughs> and this idea that young people were taking loads of selfies at funerals and uh, it was this great, some, some, like, some editor somewhere basically made a blog of like all the photos of kids taking selfies at funerals. And I was like, holy shit, what the hell is this? And everyone's kind of decrying it, being like, oh my God, it's the most vain generation ever. Like they, they, they've got no respect and blah, blah, blah. And they kind of, you know, and all I thought to myself was like, they're just doing what they do every day, which is take selfies. And they're doing a thing that they've never done before, which is go to a funeral. Like, the funeral is a weird thing in their world. Like they're just trying to process it in a way that makes sense to them, which is like doing the thing they do every day, taking a selfie. But so it stuck in my mind. I was like, wow, man, like if I'd lost my best friend in the age of Instagram and Facebook and, and, and Snapchat and stuff, like how would I have handled that? That seems like a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. And it made me think, I'm like, what are, what are the ways people are grieving now, basically? If that's an expression of how people grieve now, that's fine. It's all like, it, it makes sense, but it's interesting to see the backlash. And it just basically made me think, like, what would be a more appropriate way to use those things we use every day, like a smartphone, to grieve in a more, not suitable, but a more capable way or a more ranging way or a more kind of emotional way? And that was the kind of the seed for Cove, which was how can we use our smartphones to grieve better? And I met uh, a designer, Alex Rothera at Fabrica, and we, we hit it off because he was really interested. He came from a sort of interaction design background, and he was really interested in like different forms of interaction and 
ways to kind of really do things differently. So we kind of did some workshops. We kind of basically came up with all those different concepts. And one of them was like, what if you could use music to express your emotions? And like, how could you grieve through making music, basically? And so that was it. And then we kind of, we, we basically got a little bit of funding. We, we got investment from Beth McGreen Ventures, which is a sort of social tech accelerator in London. And uh, we built it and we launched it and it kind of took from there. And in the end, we, we worked with NHS England. And as they were building these, these mental health uh, apps, they were building the NHS app library and just kind of like snowballed from there in terms of being in the right place at the right time to kind of um, move through that kind of uh, uh, pace of opening up mental health through digital technologies. And I think what was helpful for us was that we, we never tried to sort of like couch it in this very sort of um, uh, process-driven CBT model of like, you know, we're going to solve your problem through an app. It was more like, here's a space for you to self-express. Here's a space for you to kind of capture emotions, which are pretty messy and not that easy to describe. Um, and so this idea that Cove is just a, a music maker where you can kind of place stones in water and make a, basically a piece of music, which is very simple by design so that anyone can make something that kind of captures how they're feeling. And, um, and to this day, you know, like we have thousands, thousands of downloads a week. We have people of, of all ages using it. We have, you know, it's used in, in, in hospices, it's used in schools, it was used in a refugee camp. It was, you know, it's used in, in, uh, uh, in, with older people, people with Alzheimer's, people with Parkinson's. It's just, it's just, it's amazing because it's music, you know, music is medicine, you know, like, and there's so much, you know, there's, and, and so being part of that community, like we see like how that is being developed as, as, as real evidence-based interventions and, and it's kind of couched in music th therapy which is a very distinctive you know practice in terms of a therapist working with music um so it's not music therapy per se but it's it's you know it's used by music therapists you know in terms of their practice so it's it's a for me it's a really beautiful story of like how to sort of use to kind of understand that there's a there's a there's a general need for for ambiguity there's a general need for kind of expression which isn't um trying to fix the problem you know it's just about making space to 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 see see that kind of experience as it is which is kind of confusing you know it's about grief but it's also just about mental health it was just you know it's really used by everyone for, you know half of our half of our users just use it to manage anxiety and depression they just use it as a way of like journaling you know it's musical journaling in a way it's such a beautiful app, and uh, I, as I downloaded it, I was really hoping it would be as intuitive as it is. Mm. I feel like I've seen similar kind of things ages ago that were very clunky, and I just immediately dropped them. Mm. Um, so yeah, I I really love it as a tool. So. I mean, yeah, big up to the aesthetic and like the the usability of it. But I really hear what you're saying in terms of some points of your experience of emotion are going to be 
before you have the ability to articulate that with words. Mm. And maybe, maybe you never have to, maybe you never get to that point. And there are, so when I think about things like therapeutic play, play therapy, mm. that might be with children who don't yet have the language to explain or describe what mm -hmm. they have experienced. Mm -hmm. It might also be that what they experienced was at a point when they didn't have languages at all. And so mm -hmm. those memories are more kind of just sensations. But I also think about people who are older who might have experienced some kind of traumatic event at a very young age. And so the type of regulation that they need, the type of um, processes they might use might be rhythmic or um, repetitive because of the point in their development at which that event occurred. Mm -hmm. And so I can, I can see how something that is musical would completely tie in with all of that. Um, and I, I, I really love the way you described it as well as musical journaling. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that, but yeah, having, it could be cool to do a piece a day, you know, and just mm. see, just see, reflect back on that, see what, see what it looked like after a year. That could mm -hmm. be cool. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, there's a certain naivety to it, which is, you know, it's, an, it's like an iterative development of, of a product. So like, you know, what we learn as we build it and how we respond to it. But I think at the heart of it is, you know, everyone, when we, when we tested it and, and, and worked with young people right at the start and through it as well, but like certainly right at the start, was this idea that you would speak to sort of 17, 18 year olds and they'd be like, you know, Oh, I can't play a musical instrument like my boyfriend plays. And it's like, well, okay. But like, why do you think you can't express yourself? Like, you know, people express themselves in all different ways. Like, and it's kind of just nice to kind of capture that kind of motivation, which is, I just want to get something out, you know? I used to get really frustrated as a kid, like, uh, with the piano, just like smash stuff out. Didn't make any sense. Didn't write it down. Didn't make anything of it. But just the, the idea that, you know, I think we all sometimes just need to sort of get something out of our system. And my and friend uh, has has a, a daughter who is very very young, um, and I, we've been uh, experimenting with a therapeutic process which involves viewing clips of interactions between them. Mm -hmm. And the other day, he sent me a video of her. She, you know, she can just about sit up. So you know, a months she's like one one year couple of months just smashing away at this piano and the reason he sent it to me is that one of the things that we'd filmed was him sitting with her in his arms and him playing the piano mm -hmm. and um it was just lovely that you know a week later she's there just hitting keys and loving the the fact that this action causes that response of sounds and then looking at him and, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful process. Mm -hmm. Wonderful process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. Um, you had, a, you had a second question. What was your second question again? Was it just about what I'm doing now? I mean, yeah, I suppose I, I feel like the, the area is such a big one. Mm death <laughs> caps and um 
I suppose, I, yeah, I just, before we parted ways, wanted to get a sense of what you might be thinking about now or what design challenges you were, you were mulling over now. Mm. So there's a couple. One is, there's a large one, which is like, so as I said, like this sort of, this journey for me around designing in this, in this kind of world was kind of like my first mission in a way, which was like, what can design do, you know? And the world is a very different place from 2013. When I started this kind of work, there was lots of like little projects, people, you know, design schools would do projects on death and people would redesign urns and, and coffins and they would kind of make, you know, digital uh, safes or kind of, you know, um, spaces for, for people to hold their memories and, you know, all this kind of stuff and all, all kind of like small responsive uh, 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 design solutions to various little bits of the, of, the, of the issue around what it means to die today. And like there's a whole industry that's basically emerged in, in the following years, you know, it's variously called like death tech and, you know, uh, different names. Uh, Necrotech was another example I heard, which I hate. But um, Necrotech, wow. Yeah. It's like, ugh, what is that? A rotting, you know, a rotting smartphone? What is that? Um, death tech, I guess. I mean, people love, you know, it's like FinTech. Everyone loves to kind of give tech a sort of suffix, you know. To You've got a portmanteau of tech in it. You're winning. Exactly. It's like, oh, like death tech. Anyway. Um, because most of it's just fintech, most of it's just financial services. But um, uh, the 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 interesting thing is like, yeah, there's there's you know, investors basically like capital is willing to invest in it because there's there's a generational change happening, which is baby boomers are now getting to an age where they're starting to 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 get old, and they're the generation that never thought they were ever going to die because they had everything going well for them. They had the, the best growth, they had the best health, they had the best welfare support, they had the best, you know, pensions, they had the best of everything. So now they want the best death. That generational demand is there. So our generation is responding by making loads of startups to respond to it. Um, there's also the kind of cultural kind of background, which is, yeah, death is becoming more acceptable. You know, of saying it's like that sound you hear at the moment, aside from the bird song and the sort of lack of you know cars is the is the sort of taboo of death finally disappearing like there's death is present in a way which is not is not is unlike what's been before and i don't know what that means yet but it's certainly happening um so things are changing from when i started this in 2013 like the whole world has changed so uh, i'm in this phase of like where what is my contribution? Like, where should I, where should I work next? So to, to an extent, I don't know. I'm still figuring that out. However, like I, I do have a day job. So I'm like, I'm working on lots of things, but like maybe to tie this up a little bit. Um, one of the things that I've learned in the last couple of years um, is that there is a, a real tide changing in the way in which care is being delivered or being proposed to be delivered and is actually being done, which is 
community driven in terms of if we think about how we age and then we die, um, half of us still die in hospital. Um, and for some people, that's exactly where they need to be in terms of the, 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 the needs that they have. But only 8% of, 8 of us want to die in a hospital. So like, there's a real mismatch between where we end up dying and where we want to. And the reality is, is that hospices themselves actually cater for a very small population popular percentage of the population only eight percent of people eight again eight percent of people die in the hospice partly because they don't have that actually that many beds so most people die you know the, the split is between a care home and a home uh, uh their own home so there's you know you can you can say 40 percent 20 30 40 percent between those other two places and like that's only going to increase so like more people are going to die in care homes, more people are going to want to die at home and be able to die at home. And that changes the dynamic about how care is delivered. So if you think about doctors and well-trained people are all in these hospices and hospitals, but most people are wanting to die and will be dying in the community, in these other places, in care homes, in nursing homes, in, in their own homes. And so that presents a pretty practical challenge, which is like, how do you enable a really good death I quote a good death to happen in places where you know medical professionals and clinical professionals aren't always at. And part of this is also like how do we yeah how do we go back to redistrib redistributing that power a little bit? How do we kind of change that dynamic? Because um, when you make death non-medical, it suddenly becomes these all this this rich tapestry of other stuff. Because suddenly, suddenly then death is not a failure because suddenly if you're able to care for someone um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's framed in the way in which it's natural and it's part of what's going to happen, then suddenly I think it reframes for, for families what it's all about. But when it's like set in a sort of curative environment, like a hospital where people are expected to get better and then someone does not get better, then, the, then you're setting yourself up for death as a failure. But when you kind of actually situate it somewhere else, it allows you, gives you the opportunity, it gives you a crack to kind of, you know, crack in the, in, the, in the dark to be able to kind of open up. So that's kind of where my work is going a little bit, which is how might we redistribute the power, the capabilities, the, the skills from the healthcare professionals who are amazing and do an amazing job, but represent a system which isn't necessarily the right one to, to enabling us to die in a more kind of whole way, um, which is good for the families and the people around them to, to, to be able to move through a death in a good way, in a quote, good way. So the work we've been doing is like to, to, to narrow that down a little bit is around, our, our starting point is around um, the kind of care that people need at the end of life. So, as I said, it's kind of holistic. People have physical needs, they have social needs, they have psychological needs, they have spiritual needs. Um, and that can all be done by various different people. But it comes down to stuff like, you know, all these things, like there's, 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 a, there's a reality to this kind of stuff, which is like, yeah, it's all great, like doing wills and making wishes and organizing your Facebook photos and like you know, handing over your passwords and, you know, all that kind of stuff that you can prepare in, in advance. That's great. But at the end of the day, as, as a manicure nurse said to me, like, who's going to wipe your arse? And that's kind of like, that's, that's, what, that's what dying is. 
is who's going to wipe your arse and who's going to manage your pain. Um, and so your family members are naturally people. There's, a, there's you know, 500,000, I think it's like 4.3, 4.2 million, quote, informal carers, family members or, or people associated with the family caring for someone around the UK. There's half a million people caring for someone at the end of life. That means there's one person for every dying person um, around the UK. So the, like, there's, there's a natural dyad, basically, of someone caring for a dying person who's not a healthcare professional, but just a loved one, a friend, a family member, whoever it is. But they don't really have the skills or the training to do you know, the kind of care that might be needed, say, like managing pain relief. And so our work is around upskilling those people so if they're able to and they want to they can do the kind of things which are really kind of necessary like administer pain relief and what's really interesting is once you kind of unpick that you see it happening all over the place and one of the things that i think scares people is this idea like my god you are you suggesting that a carer like a loved one a wife a husband a, a daughter would give like morphine to their mom or dad or something and it's like yeah it happens all the time it happens now um Happens a lot of the case because that person is a trained healthcare professional. So they've literally done injections before. They've done, given administrative, administered drugs before. But equally, there's so many people that are trained in doing it because they want to, because they want to make sure that their husband or their wife or their mom or dad stays at home, doesn't end up in a hospital. So they're saying, like, what do I need to do? Show me how to do it. And that's kind of great, but it's kind of how do we make that more equitable for more people? Uh, what is the work that needs to be done to kind of, widen the access, widen the skills, widen the ability for people to do that. And that pain relief is one element of it, but it's a whole bunch of other stuff, which is people get very frustrated, palliative care professionals get very frustrated that patient uh, family members aren't told how to turn someone in bed. So, you know, if someone stays in bed for a very long time because they're, they're ill, like they end up having pressure sores, you know? And so people need turning all the time just to, to, to make sure that the body doesn't end up in a, end up in a bad state. There's this weird paradox where they're not allowed to be told how to do it because they might hurt themselves. But because they need to do it, they end up doing it and hurting themselves because they don't have to do it properly. So like, because there's this weird control of information and knowledge saying, no, no, that's the job for the district nurse or that's the, that's the job for the community nurse. But why is turning someone? It's not a complex medical procedure. It's just like, show me how to make sure I don't do my back in. Show me how to do it so I don't like, you know, end up crushing their arm or something. Um, so there's practical stuff like that, which is just like it's, it's, it's held by professionals for some reason because of I, I would have thought very reasonable reasons, which is like we don't want people to kind of end up doing things worse. But people end up doing things worse because you don't show them how to do it. So there's a little bit of that, which is a really interesting piece of the work, which is like how do we kind of distribute the, the knowledge a little bit more? So that's kind of what we're working on at the moment. And how that is expressed is through, you know, piloting interventions that allow people to, to be trained in doing that. And that's kind of the, the practical work that we're doing. But then it speaks to this larger kind of systems change around, like, how can we make the end-of-life experience more equitable, more family-centered, more community-centered, um, that allows people to die with the, the kind of respect and dignity and, and meaning that 
in sense to, makes sense to them. Hmm. I'm going to change my seating position. Go for it. I was doing cross-legged and I'm, my surface I'm sitting on has become very squeaky. Huh. So I didn't, I didn't want to risk getting squeaks while you were talking. I, there was, I, hey, you, you, you've opened up so many amazing avenues I want to walk down. Um, I think on a personal level, I really empathize with the picture you painted. I was a, a young carer from the age of nine up until about, well, into my 20s. And there's definitely something there around when you have someone you love in, you know, in the same space as you and they need certain things in terms of, you know, you talked about being moved and, and avoiding pressure sores. You, that becomes an ethical issue. Mm. And I, I almost see the argument from the medical profession around uh, training as an ethical issue as well, you know? Mm. So you have these two uh, ethical arguments co conflicting with each other. And I also am really interested to know what it might mean for people if they add in that caring role when it comes to them starting their grief process mm -hmm. or when, when it comes to them engaging with a person's death because it, you know, it, it could, I'm just thinking about the psychological implications. It could be really challenging to have your role change from being a family member to a carer. And you know that there are certainly elements of that which are very intimate. And, um, you know, when it comes to wiping someone's ass, as the Marie Curie nurse said, um, that, that's maybe something that nobody ever wants to do or have done to them. You know, it brings up all of these kind of complicated emotions of uh, guilt and shame and anger and frustration mm. and dignity. But it also could be one of the most wonderful things you could do, do with someone, you know, is to, to facilitate those basic things in terms of comfort and pain relief. Yeah. And to be part of that could, yeah, it could, it could facilitate a whole, other way of grieving. So yeah, I, I, I suppose I'm really interested in how people might experience that psychologically and how it might change their, their navigation of, of, of bereavement. There's that, that classic statement, like culture eats strategy for breakfast. And part of that is kind of true here, I think, which is you can't, and this relates back to the collective grief paper as well, is like you cannot really create culture overnight like you cannot create the rituals you cannot kind of yeah um reconcile what you're talking about overnight like it's literally you know, like, like there's a culture shift that occurs which makes and it's what one thing i'd like to hope from this this pandemic is the role of the carer is not and shouldn't be seen like to what extent is it seen as a demeaning slightly kind of low level job um to what extent is it not rewarded in society as in literally how much are carers paid as a reflection of their value in society 
to what extent, you know, do people have to make trade-offs in their own life to care for someone versus doing what they want to do with their own life and, and, and making their own way in life? Like, how do you reconcile that? And that's not done through designing something. Like, that's not by any means solvable by, like, creating a, a, an intervention or, or a new service or something. You know, like, that, that takes years. And I think that's for me, is really interesting. Like, um, you know, we talk in design sprints, you know, in the design world about, like, you know, how do we get from A to B really quickly? And this whole thing is a marathon. This is, like, not a sprint. It's, like, how do you slowly chip away at the kind of and, – and integrate all those – those those paradoxes and tensions which say like we don't really in in other in other cultures you know care is um such a fundamental part of of family life um the problem is is like we we end up getting trapped in particular kind of generational loops where you know, we're called like the sandwich generation now. if you raise a family then also have to care for your parent and it's kind of like, yeah, because, well, that's, it's weird. We call that a generational, like uh, a unique generational thing. That's kind of the way kind of life has been is that you'd have your grandparents in your house with you and you're also looking after your kids. Like, but it's seen as like a problem because we're expected to be able to live autonomous lives. Um, and I say this, frankly, as someone who's never had to care for someone. So I'm speaking from a completely ignorant point of view, but like, um, my the, the conversations I've just picked up over the years are just are interesting to me in the respect that you know going to a care home and speaking to the Filipino staff and being like I'm like how do you how do you find the you know work here and she's like I just don't get it like why don't you look after your own families I'm like she's like I have to I come all the way from the Philippines to look after your family like why I don't get to look after my own family now I'm like yeah you're right like it's kind of weird why is that? Like, why is there, why is our society being constructed like that relatively recently? Um, Cause I don't know. I mean, I, like it's kind of what I love about this work is that it's just, you start pulling on that string and it just goes everywhere. That's what I love about this work is like, you know, so the work is kind of incorporating, trying to incorporate and make space for all that kind of stuff without saying that there's a solution to any of it. But um, I feel like there's like short, medium term problems which is one reason why the pandemic has been really kind of powerful because it's revealed the work that needs to be done, that the NHS um, knew that they wouldn't have enough capacity to be able to support people to do pain relief at home. So the project that we were working on has been accelerated to respond to that. So there's a need, there is a need, there's a definite need for this kind of stuff. But once you start pulling on that string, you start to uncover the things that you were, you were talking about, the ethical, the ethical problems, the kind of the, 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 the relational problems for family members that, you know, it's being expressed through stuff like, especially with pain relief, like the last injection, like how, how do you know that the, the injection you're giving or the medication you're giving might be the last thing and therefore might is commonly understood by, by, by lay people as being like the thing that killed them. Like, how do you deal with that? That's a lot, that's a burden. So how do you negotiate that? And the way that I understand that you can negotiate it is, by creating the space for people who've been there, who've done it, to be able to tell the person who is doing it, it's going to be all right. I think the problem comes when you try and entrench the, the, the same structures of, 
of responsibility by saying like the doctor, the nurse says you're doing it right or wrong. It's like, well, if you speak to someone who's been there before, they've probably got the life experience to tell you that like, don't worry about it. Like it's fucking terrifying, but I came out the other side. So you can come out the other side. And I think that speaks, that's the kind of thing I find more powerful is like, how do, how do that's when I see talk about redistribution of power, it's kind of like that is that we have all the power we need. We don't need to take it from professionals, but it needs to be done in that sort of supportive relational way, which is saying like, again, like I've been here before. You haven't been here before. Let me, let me just hold your hand. Let me, let me just be here. Like I'm going to stand at the bar and say like, don't worry, I've been there. It's okay. You know, that's what I kind of like to see. Have you heard of a man called Frank Ostaseski? Yeah. 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 One of the things that really came out of my reading of his work was the the opportunity for the the kind of complicated conversation and thinking that comes from these kind of situations, and that if you turn away from them, you might not benefit from, you know, for example, the the way the Filipino nurse dropped that knowledge on you in terms of like mm. I can't look after my family because I have to come and look after your family mm. that raises it raises so many powerful questions and opportunities to question priorities and um fears and all of those kind of things that are tied up in that moment I I suppose, yeah, I, I, I wonder and I hope that as care starts to happen more within the home, that those opportunities might present themselves more in terms of, you know, this this could be a moment where I think a, a lot about what's important for me. Mm. Or this is a moment where I think I, I could think about how I'd like people to relate to me or yeah. how or how I have treated people in the past, you know, like it... it doesn't have to happen but i suppose i hope that these yeah it's like there i feel like touch point is a design word you're increasing the potential for these these touch points of relational or psychological understanding mm-hmm. yeah i completely agree like it's um the the problem is you know many people had really bad experiences of losing their parent in a hallway of a hospital and it's like, fucking hell, that's not what I want. And so like, they go out their way to do the opposite, which is a huge reaction against it. But then there's this middle ground, which is like, how do we slowly make every death better in your family? You know, like if, we, if you're lucky to have a, you know, a sort of a, a calm, you know, safe, you know, relatable experience, then you know that's the gold standard. You can kind of keep trying to achieve that. And then if you have a bad experience, you can try and, you, I hope that people can move towards trying to make that better for someone else. But the problem then is like, if people get stuck and being like, you know, that's where this huge is the reaction against like, you know, what they call like um, advanced directives. It's like, you know, just switch off the machine. Like just finish me off as soon as it turns nasty. Like people just don't want to have to engage with the experience. It's like, they just, they want to avoid at all costs a bad death. And that's kind of like, that's a shame because like, you know, um, it should be, you know, I hope it could be an experience that you have some participation in as opposed to being like, just <laughs> knock me off like an old dog. It's like, 
Oh man. Yeah, I guess so. But like, this is a huge, like, you know, this is a, you weren't, you know, you were, you're around at your birth, but you don't remember it. You, you could be in the position to kind of experience your own death. And that's, that's, that's a gift, isn't it? I hope. I mean, that's not, you know, people with dementia would probably disagree. So that's a different story, but like, um, there's, there's an opportunity and that's the, yeah. Frank talks about like, you know, the five invitations, you know, this idea of inv- inviting the opportunity, I think is like the best framing. I, I think that's a really lovely place to finish actually, in terms of the potential for death to be a gift. Mm. Um, thank you so much for your, your thought and time. I, I've really, maybe this is the case with every conversation, but I feel like I'm leaving with so many more things to think about than I came in with. Well, thank you, man. I mean, this has been a really, like your questions have been really revealing. Um, and it's been really nice. It's a fantastic way to start the day. So thank you. Yeah. I was thinking that as well. I normally record podcasts in the evening. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is a brilliant way to start the day talking to Ivor about death. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Yeah, I mean, I literally could have talked to Ivor all morning and uh, it, it was special to get so much time with him just to talk about such important human topics. If you want to know more about Ivor's work, I've linked his website and Twitter in the show notes. If you know anyone that you think would like the Sizzle podcast, please do share, share the love. And if you are interested in staying in the loop, you can join my mailing list, which will mean that I update you about new episodes of The Sizzle. And it also means that you'll get a semi-regular email from me with ideas for how you can use psychology to improve your life in the everyday. Until next time, goodbye. Sizzle.